Amen. It is so good to be able to trust our God with all that's before us. Well, with that in mind, we want to invite you this evening to be in the Word of God with us. Tonight, we are continuing our chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse study in the book of Proverbs. We are in Proverbs chapter 17. If you want to open up your Bible, if you brought one, you can use that. That would be great. But we want to continue to hold before you just that which we're doing in the book of Proverbs. We've actually taken and printed out all of Proverbs 17. In fact, for every chapter in the book of Proverbs, we've done this so far. We have a single booklet for each chapter. And, and just the text of, of, the, of the proverb is in there for you if it's a, a way that you'd want to track along with us so that you could maybe mark it up and, and track a little bit more intently than you might be able to do so in your own Bible. That's its aim. Now, before I quickly give more instructions on that, I do want to reach out to you online and say we don't want you to feel left out. We've made a way for you to do that as well. If you want to have a copy of this booklet, you can go to our website at calvaryrosal.com, go into the messages and today's message. You can find it, and there'll already be a download link there. You can download it, and it'll say notes. Download that, and it'll be a PDF of this booklet. So you can either just print that out or just use it on an electronic device, and either way would work if you're wanting to track along with us. Because the aim is that you would be able to take the the verses that are here and just the weight that's in each one, because Proverbs is that. It's one of those places where so much each proverb can be very different and land on its own. So being able to mark it up is helpful. I'm going to use a a series of colors and boxes that are good for the screen. You might only have one color of pen, so you can use that as well. And you don't even have to use uh, the designs that I'm using, but I do want you to try to follow so that you'd be able to notice that which is a good focus and then what would flow from that. Like, what does that do? Then you'd be able to notice the contrast or the connection that's there in the midst of it. And, And maybe that would be bad. If it is, it's going to be red for us on the screen or a square And then we'll look at some pieces that are God, and we'll use purple on the screen, and you can use maybe a different line or a different kind of box if you'd want to try that. It would be great. One way or another, we're wanting you to be able to do that so that through this tonight, God would make his word known to you. As we say all the time, our desire is that he would do that, that you would grow in understanding, you would grow in truth. But we long that God would make himself known this evening, so we're going to take a moment and pray ask that the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, that he would teach us, and I'm hoping you would gain understanding of his word tonight. But as we say each time, I'm hoping that in God's good faithfulness, believing that his intention is tonight, that probably one of these Proverbs is going to stick out bigger than the others, and it's probably going to be different all the way around the room, which is a really good and personal thing. I just want you to hear that tonight. I just want you to hear it from the Lord. When, it, when, he, when you get there and you're like, okay, that's the one. I mean, I can feel it. Like the Lord has been already saying this like six times to me. And you'd think I would have already got it. But yeah, let it land and then let it work that good thing in you. So let's ask him for that. I'm going to lead you in prayer, hoping you would pray as well, that God would make his word known to us tonight. God, thank you so much that you are at work in us. Jesus, thank you so much forgiving us, and and through your death, through your resurrection, through the power that's in you, that now the the power of the work of the Spirit is taking place in the lives of of believers. And we're just asking for that tonight. You who, who said you would be that helper that would teach us. We're asking that we would be taught. And Lord, you know us. You know where we are. I pray that you'd open up our understanding to your truth, that there wouldn't be anything that is absolutely obscure, that we don't get. I pray that we'd be able to have a a fairly good understanding of each piece. But Lord, in your favor, 
Would you give us ears to hear what you're speaking to us? Give us ears to hear what the Spirit would speak to your church, that we would hear that tonight, and it would be just effective in us, that transforming work that you do. God, we're just asking for that tonight. I'm asking for that, that in your power, you would make that known. God, thank you for your goodness in that, and we pray for your good favor as we trust this now to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Proverbs chapter 17, we dive into it this evening, and one of the things that we begin to find is God is inviting us to His plan for our lives, His will, His wisdom to be at work in us, and sometimes, even at the outset, it isn't necessarily the way we would have just instinctively thought, but it's good, and it's better. Hey, notice with me how he begins it with us there in verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. It's not a complicated proverb. In many ways, we see it. He's saying, okay, this is a better thing. If, if you could see two things and choose them, it would be better. It would be better to have a dry morsel. The idea of just having, you know, not a lot, a, a very, you know, stingy amount of food or it's just kind of, you know, piece of bread kind of thing, you know, not a, a lavish feast in the midst. It says it would be better to have that with quietness, with peace, with, with a, a place of enjoying that than it would be to, to have a house full of feasting with strife, to have, you know, to seem to have, you know, not only plenty of food, but overflowing food and, and, and celebratory kind of atmosphere. It says if you had that with strife, it would be a, a, just a horrendous thing. I mean, in one sense, there's just a very practical measure of this proverb that speaks to us of the value of peace, speaks to us like it would be so much better. I mean, to have peace, even if that meant you didn't necessarily have everything else that was, you know, seemingly to be offered, but have peace, that would be so much better. That, that to have that, it's better than having, you know, an abundance, but having just strife and, and anger and problems in the midst of it. And simply put, it's true. Some of you would testify to this. Some of you have been on both sides of this. It's like I've lived in both of those spaces, and that's true. I, I've known what both those spaces are, and it's so much better to have peace, even if it just seems, you know, less, you know, just overflowing with, with abundance or any of those things. And that said, there's not only a, a truth that's found here, but at the very beginning, we just want to highlight just even the, the gospel reality that's a part of this. See, think about it this way, as we just want to gaze into what God has for us in Proverbs, certainly he's inviting us to wisdom and way that this is, but even in this, there's just truth that's found there, because here's the deal. Better to have peace, better to have peace, even if that doesn't, you know, make you have everything that this world has, better to have peace, and I think about what Paul tells us, you know, that Christ came so that we could have peace with God, that we have this relationship that we get to have uh, this place that makes us right with God. Now, that relationship with God doesn't always make us healthy, wealthy, or wise. I mean, that's really one of those just false truths that says, boy, if you would really have a great life with God, you would you know, necessarily be, have everything that's there. It's not true, but it's so much better. I'd rather have peace 
I'd rather have the peace that passes understanding. I'd rather have the peace that's only available in God, even if that didn't make me wealthy or rich or, you know, have an abundance. Those things aren't where it's found. It's, it's really found in Him, and that's a good place for us just to own for a second that what God has for us is best, certainly true in a gospel reality. And so I, again, just pause there and say, if it's anybody here in this room or online that's outside of that, you can't have this without Jesus. That's what He came for. He came to die for us so that we could have peace with God, and that's the only place that it's found. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to fix everything else in your life. It doesn't mean that, you know, all your problems are immediately solved. Sometimes it actually goes the other way, but it's so much better. It's so much better. If you're outside of that relationship with Him, we invite you to that. But if you're in this relationship, sometimes it is, again, just to note this and say, you know, God's ways God's ways, it isn't always, you know, just this extravagant, you know, where all of a sudden you have this house feasting. It's, you know, really in this world so often that's accompanied with strife and the things of this world. It would be so much better to have what God would have for us, to have peace, you know, just to enjoy His peace and to value that above you know, the other places that this world would offer and seek to pull you from. And in many ways, again, part of what this proverb is, is telling us is if, if that's a choice for you, and again, for sometimes it's not always a choice. Sometimes life just takes you on this road. But if it's a choice for you, it's like, I would choose peace. I would choose what that would look like just to have a life of peace. And he says, it is such a better place to go. Well, good. May God meet us in that and draw us to peace. Well, leaving that, verse 2, jumping to another subject, he says it this way. A wise servant will rule over a son who causes shame and will share an inheritance among the brothers. So what's being held out to us is a wise servant, someone who in that culture that day, a slave and being in the midst of this, but one who would do it wisely, who where in your status and the place that you're living in, would seek to just walk in the wisdom which we're seeing in the book of Proverbs laid out for us. He says, that wise servant, well, it would be in a place that he would find himself ruling over a son who is causing shame. You know, that he'd find himself in that and in the midst of that. He says, not only that, this wise servant could find him just sharing the inheritance among the brothers. In one sense, it's not a complicated one, but just want you to think about it with me. It's almost as if you could gaze into a single family, and you'd look at it there, and you'd have a child of, of, of a family, and they're living in disobedience. Man, they're, they're, they're just stealing. They're into drugs or alcohol. Their whole life is a mess. They're untrustworthy in the midst of all that, and, and, and grief, and, and in many ways, the, the family having to walk through that. But then you have this servant who's not even a blood relative, you know, not even a blood relative in the midst of it, but is faithful fears God, loves God, trying to do what's right, trying to do that's right. It's as if you would look at it and say how much valuable that is, that in one sense you would find it and say they, 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 they find such great pleasure in that and begin to treat that servant as if he were family and, and finds an inheritance among the brothers, that it would find himself ruling in the midst of that, finding themselves moving into positions of, of honor and influence and power and it's just a simple reality of how good that is. That would, in one sense, in an exhortative way, call us to be walking in wisdom, in whatever status that is. And then sometimes just to watch the value of it. See, I, I think about it from a different kind of perspective. Again, we don't live in the exact same culture of that, but some of you have had this reality. Some of you are living it. 
Some of you have had this in your family where you would look and you'd say, you know, I have, a, I, have a, I have a son, I have a daughter. Well, they're not really my son or daughter, but they're like a son and daughter to me because I've loved them. They, you know, they were a part of a broken family. They were a part of another space. And, and we kind of welcomed them into our home. I mean, we just welcomed them into this and, and loved them and, and, and invested Christ into them. And sometimes even our own kids were doing poorly. I mean, they weren't doing as well as that one. And this one who wasn't a child to me became one that I, I trusted in more. I, I, I relied on them more. And I treat them like family. I mean, they've become family to me because of the relationship what we have. And and some of you have lived that, some of you are walking through it, and you just understand the power of this, the power of of having someone who just is walking in wisdom, and and the wonder which that that brings, even into the midst of a family, and it's certainly true. Again, not a space that we're called to create, but it is a space that's calling us to be the kind of people that walk in wisdom, and wherever we're found, and to watch us the value of that, the value that it brings us into relationship, brings us into a place uh, where God would have us and does incredible work in our lives. That God calls you and I to be that. Well, we go on to verse 3, and maybe one of the things that helps get there, or God's intention is to help it get there, is what he talks about here. He says, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. So we watch this, and we kind of understand it. There are good things that are being held out to us, or maybe even just statements of fact. And so I'm actually going to use a blue line. I didn't put that in the uh, kind of notes earlier, but we've been using it a little bit for things that are just statement of fact. So he says, here's the thing. If you're going to refine silver, the refining pot is for silver. That's how you refine silver. And the furnace, is, is that's the place that you refine gold. So in one sense, it's simply a statement of fact. It's a statement of this is where you do that. So if you're wanting to refine silver in those days, again, you use the refining pot, you put it in the fire so that the dross rises to the surface and you can move it away. If you're going to deal with gold, you use the furnace to burn away all the the stuff that's there. These are the ways that you deal with those impurities. These are the ways that you cause that metal to grow. Well, so he's giving us that perspective and he says, but here's what we need to understand. The Lord, as he's at work in our lives, he tasks, he works in hearts. He does this in hearts. God is seeking to do this, and I think in the sense of the, the place that you can see that, the, the contrast, the picture's pretty clear, not necessarily the most comfortable picture. See, I want you to understand, so Silver's refined in a fire. Gold is refined in a fire. It's not something that, you know, you kind of pull out silver and throw flowers at, and it just gets better, you know? It's like, it just works so well. It's like, no, I'm going to have to put this through trouble. I'm going to have to put this in an intense, heated situation that will cause change to happen, but the point of it is to increase value. And what he's calling us to understand is God does the same in our lives, that God is seeking to do things for our good, He's seeking to make things for good that would, in that sense, much like silver or gold, that the outcome of that would be for our our profit, for what's good in our lives. And and yet the invitation seems just certainly for us to recognize that and to realize that some of it is that. Again, just taking the illustration for what it is, it must certainly mean that God allows us to go through the fire, that God allows us to go through the furnace, that God allows us to go through things that the intention of it 
is to make it good in us. I think about it this way. James, when he would launch it out in his letter there in the book of James in the New Testament, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. It's one of the most well-known kind of just verses in the book of James in the midst of it, but let's just be clear. For most of us, we're still trying to get here. I mean, I'm just gonna be honest. I'm not always here. It just is. He says, okay, you're gonna go through a trial. You're going to go through something that's going to test you. You're going to go through, you're going to be put into the flame. You're going to be put into the furnace, if you will. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to count that joy. The idea of account is the idea of an accounting term. It doesn't mean that it feels joyful. There's not anybody that's like, this is so much fun. We, should, we, should, we could charge tickets for this. You know, I, I could, I mean, I could just, this is so much fun. It's like, no, it's not fun. But I can account it good. I can say, this is meant for my good. There's, he wouldn't let this happen in my life if it wasn't for my good, if it wasn't for what, I mean, there's not, he doesn't waste anything. There's not anything that he's not working together for good. So he says, when you fall into various trials, you should just say, hey, this is good because this testing, this place where God is testing my hearts, where he's allowing things to happen, it's seeking to produce in me patience, which has the idea of endurance and holding up. And he says, if I could go through that, he says that patience will have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This would do good in my life. This would do good in my life if I'll let that. And so there is a place of just valuing that, of just understanding the, the reality of it, that he's inviting you and I to say, hey, God's not, he, he's doing this. He's testing our hearts. And sometimes it happens much like refining gold or silver. He allows trials to come and it brings things to the surface that we didn't even know were there. It's like, I didn't even know that was in there. It was in there, but God's allowing it. So he says, well, let's, let's deal with that. I mean, it's not a promise for us. Unlike, you know, in the midst of this, it doesn't automatically do that. We need to step into it and say, okay, God, change me. Like, let this purify me. Let this, you know, do good in my life as I hold on to him, as I allow these trials to work good, as I step towards God in the midst of it. But there's still value in just understanding that God does that. That, that he allows that to happen, that he allows sometimes these things to happen, much again as the refining pot is for silver, the furnace for gold, but where God does it. God's doing it. He's trying to test our hearts. He's allowing things because he's seeking to grow us and, and, and make us more godly and cause us to, to do, as James has said, we could be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And I think how good that is. Maybe part of this is just to invite you to really believe this to really believe that our God is the God that he says he is. He really does care. He is really seeking to work inside you. Because see, if you're like many of us, sometimes we, we end up in the fire, we end up in the furnace, and we doubt it. We doubt God's goodness. We begin to think God doesn't care about me. He doesn't love me. You know, why would he let me go through this? Why would he let me have such a hard space and time? And, and, and we begin to think that maybe he's forgotten us or maybe he's angry at us or all kinds of crazy things come into our heart. But James says, I want you to count that joy. I want you to say, hey, this is meant for good. There's, there's not any chance that, that God wouldn't work good in us. It doesn't blame all the bad things on God because our world is the brokenness. But to, for us to look at it and say, if God's going to let me walk through this, I mean, I can pray that, I'd get, that he wouldn't, but if that's where I'm going to go, then I'm going to value it and say, God, then test my heart for the, the point of making me more, not less. 
to, to making me more the person that you want me to be, not robbing me of anything. And there's a value in believing in God's good faithfulness that would cause us to see life in an entirely different way. And inviting you to see it even now. For some of you, that's where you are. You are in a little bit of a trial. You are in the place where the fire's been turned up a little bit. You, the furnace is a little bit hot. And, and right now you find yourself already beginning to ask, like, don't you care? Like, God, don't you care about me? Why would you do this? You know, why are you allowing this? I don't understand. And instead of saying, okay, this is, you know, God, if, if I'm supposed to be praying that you rescue me, you should pray for it. God, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from everything that's there. But if this is where I'm going, then I'm just going to believe that, you know, there's a point to the valleys. There's a point to the fires. There's a, there's a point to what it would do good in my life. And to embrace that becomes both a, just a biblical truth but something incredibly healthy and true because our God it will prove it out. I'm just telling you that he is working it, that he will work it, even though it doesn't feel like it in the middle of it. But how good it is to begin to value and say, okay, God, I want this. I want to believe that you are the God that does it because I'm just telling you, he is. Whether you see it or not, he is. He is a faithful God. May we believe that and may he work that inside of us to make us the people that he has us to be. Well, you can turn the page. Verse 4. An evildoer gives heed to false lips. A liar listens eagerly to a spiteful tongue. So someone is evil, doing evil things. He says in one sense, they, they find themselves gravitating so easily to false lips. Like, it's one sense that just drawn to that, like a moth to a flame in many ways. A liar, someone who's living their lives in lies and so many ways listens eagerly to a spiteful tongue. Sadly true. There's something about brokenness. There's something about living a life, choosing those things. It gravitates towards the, that in lies. He says you can almost watch it happen. You can watch someone who's doing badly and they move more quickly into the false lips into the spiteful tongue because of really who they are, uh, of where they are. And again, just a place of, of sadness for us to see it, but hopefully for us to say we want to go the opposite way because those things become so incredibly destructive. May God rescue us from it. Verse 5, he who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. So he's watching someone who is looking at somebody who's poor, living in poverty. He says they begin to mock them. They begin to mock what they are. They begin to make fun of them, look badly on them, mocking their lives. He says the moment you do that, you're approaching the maker. You, you, to, to look upon somebody in that state and, and, and to look on them with disfavor, to begin to treat them that way, is to miss the value that God made them. I mean, God is the creator of all people. There's not anybody. That, that he isn't the one who, who sees it, knows everybody that's there. And somehow to look upon that becomes this place where in many ways, it's, it's a mocking of God. It's a reproaching of God. It says he who's glad when somebody is suffering calamity. Again, maybe in the idea of poor, but even in trials, he says that person will not go unpunished. In the midst of this proverb, probably speaking of God, not allowing them to go unpunished, that he would do that. So I'll use purple to underline that in the midst of it. And in one sense, he's just calling us away from this, calling us away from being a people that 
mock people in their trials, make fun of people in their adversity, makes fun of people living in, in, in hard spaces. Such a really real reality in the world that we live. But God says, I find that wrong, and I'll be the one that deals with that. You know, even if it doesn't seem that it brings always this favor in the world or that there's consequences in the world, God says, the moment you do this, you're mocking me. You're mocking me, and I'll deal with that. That should cause us, again, to make sure that the way that we see people, the way that we see all people, is to see them as just, you know, God made, God created, God loves, God seeks, doesn't make them saved, doesn't make them eternity bound, but it makes us, you know, not mock them, not rejoice at their sorrow, not be glad in somebody else's calamity. It's a horrible space that can just, you know, really do hard things in the soul. And ultimately, God will deal with it, and He calls us away from it. Not to be such people. Not to be those kinds of people. Not to be those who look down on others in that way. All right. Well, verse 6. Again, obviously, that's Proverbs. It just kind of, we talk about something, and we jump to an entirely different subject. So hopefully, you can kind of just track with me as we continue moving there. Verse 6. Children's children are the crown of old men. And the glory of children is their father. It's a great proverb, right? Children's children, grandchildren. That's what we call them today. Children's children, they're the crown of old men. So at this point, for the rest of the service, I thought I would just show you pictures of my grandson. And, uh, you know, it's just, but you know how, I mean, honestly, there's truth there, right? I mean, I'm just telling you, I, I have one grandson, got another one that's going to be born pretty soon. So I'm pretty super excited. And I would tell you, there's truth here. There's something about that joy of, of being a granddad. There's something joyful about that and being able to celebrate that that he's causing us to see in the midst of this. But then he adds to it. And the glory of children. So now we're not talking about grandchildren, we're talking about children. He says where they glory is actually in their father. That for a child, in many ways, where they would find that which brings honor and glory, it's meant to be in this place where they find it in their father. And there's powerful realities pointing out in here that certainly God intended both in shaping of lives and the way that it works. But there's something about this proverb that walks around this in a way of the beauty of relationship, the beauty of the way that it's supposed to work. Uh, David Guzik says it well in his commentary, so I'll just put that on the screen. He says, behind this apparently innocuous proverb is a profound assertion of the interdependence of generations. Elders derive a sense of pride from their descendants, and children get their self-worth from parents. There's this place of watching this beautiful just thing that God called and created to be family, where there's honor, where there's connection and joy that's meant to be in the midst of it, and it's a beautiful space that we could look upon it and say that's how God intends it. But the opposite must also be true. On the other hand, one generation can cause shame and a sense of worthlessness in another, that where it doesn't go well, the very things that are so life-giving and are meant to be so life-giving can be so emptying and so soul-just robbing in many ways. But God's intention is it would be this way, this picture of this beautiful family, of what, what it's meant to be, where grandchildren you know, are just joys to old men and, and children are glorying in their father. Can I add to this in many ways? It also gives us a glimpse into who we are in Christ because God takes this image uh, of what a family is and he says that's what it is to become part of God's family. We become children of God. We become those who, as we come into his family, that's how we, we have this place of, of, of what this is, where, where family finds its fullest expression is that. And I want to say it this way because 
there's such incredible life here. See, for some of you, you have a really nice family. You're godly, it's a godly family, and, and it's even generations that live in the midst of this. And you find this proverb, you're like, that is so true. It's just such a great thing. It's so, I mean, our family, we love God, and, and there's generations that move together. It's such a beautiful thing when it happens, but it's more rare than we'd like to just, just own. For some of you, you could sit here and look at this proverb and go, nice for them. <laughs> that's nice for them. That's not what we have. Like, my family, we're the broken ones. Like, they, that's not, we don't, you know, there isn't good connection between the grandparents and, and, and grandkids. There's not joy that's happening there. The kids are certainly not joying uh, in, in, the, in their fathers. In fact, you would look upon it and say, almost just the natural things that are supposed to be there aren't. Which, by the way, is what Paul warns us about. He warns about this about in Timothy. He says, in the last days, he says, you know, very difficult times are going to come. And he says, you know, people are going to be lovers of money and lovers of pleasure. And, and they're going to be lovers of all these things. And he goes on in that list, and in the midst of it, he says, there's going to be people that lack love. And, and the word that's used there is it's like they, ha- they lack normal family love. Like they don't even, like they don't even have that. What, what would normally just be, he says it just becomes almost culturally a part of that. And again, some of you are there. But here's the beautiful thing. You're invited to where this is fully known. You're invited into the family of God. You're invited to be a part of a family. The church is not a business. The church is not, you know, a Christian meatpacking plant where we're all just being processed. We're a family. We're a family. We're a family of, of, of where we know one another, where we find our, where our, our life is found in this place, where there's connection and interdependence and joy even in each other. And it's going to be even so much more into eternity. And there's something beautiful about even just finding that. Again, there's such hope for anybody who's listening to me. So you could look and say, okay, I might not find this to be that case as it ought to be. Maybe you would say, again, my family's been robbed. My family's been broken. And we miss some of that, what God would intend for family. But you certainly can find it in the body of Christ. In fact, I think about it for Jesus, even in his life, as he you know, went through and, and just interplayed with his disciples and, and found them to walk in it. And then at times he'd have his, his mother and his brothers come and, and they say, you know, hey, your mother and your brothers are seeking you. He says, who's my family? Who's my fa-? It's those who hear the word of God and do it. Like, that's my real family. Like, this is where this is really found. And I'm just telling you, it's beautiful. And I'm hoping that in that sense, you find it to be so, that even being here tonight and being a part of this, you find something that's inviting you into this incredible space where there's glory, this crown, there's this joy of flowing together and what a family is intended to be, which is an amazing reality. All right, well, flip the page. Verse seven, excellent speech is not becoming to a fool, much less lying lips to a prince excellent speech, speaking well, speaking wisely, speaking, you know, profound and good things. It's not becoming uh, to a fool. This isn't the kind of thing that's saying they shouldn't speak this way. It's just saying you would never expect it. Like, you know, a fool doesn't speak wisdom. I mean, it just just doesn't, it doesn't match who they are. I mean, their life living poorly, foolishness flows from from fools that in many ways. So you're not going to expect that because that's not who they are much less is lying lips, that which is, you know, speaking wrong and evil, you know, to a prince. It shouldn't be that way. So I hope we can already see the contrast. I've even done it with colors on the screen. So you would say, okay, excellent speech, you know, it should come from a prince. 
It should come from somebody who's, who's doing well, walking well, doing the right things. That's what you'd expect. And, you know, this idea of lying lips, you would think from, from a fool. And he says in that sense, it ought to be that way. It ought to be that way. You're not going to really find a fool, you know, speaking true wisdom, you know, because it's not who they are. But you who are children of God, you who are a prince in that sense, invited into the family of God, it, it doesn't fit us to, to speak like a fool. It doesn't fit us, to fit us to have our lips, you know, speaking that which is lying and deception. It, it, it mocks the reality of who we are, and it just causes us to say it shouldn't fit. It should be like, that doesn't belong on us. That doesn't belong there. May God cause it to be not where we are because God has drawn us to a very different life. All right. Verse 8. A present is a precious stone in the eyes of its possessor, and wherever he turns, he prospers. So the good thing uh, that's being held out here is what he calls a present. He says that would be a precious stone in, in the eyes of the possessor, the one who has it, and wherever he turns it, he prospers. So I'm using blue because in one sense, it's hard to figure out good, bad. In fact, it's a little bit more complicated, and some of your versions will speak it differently. You might notice this idea of a present. Some translations point out that a present can actually be translated a bribe. Uh, that it, you know, speaks of not just giving a gift, but seeking to give deception and, and a bribe that's in the midst of it. And that would make this, pro- this proverb just a little bit problematic. Like, okay, what, 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 what is it saying? Well, let's just begin by saying, if it's simply a statement of fact, it is certainly true. It, it, it's a sad thing. You wish it wasn't. You wish in this world it didn't work that way. You know, that, you know, bribes wouldn't pay off, but they, they really do in many places in our world, especially where, you know, if you have this, you have this present, it's, it's this precious eye, and, and wherever you turn it, you can, it can sometimes open up doors and, and do that. Well, maybe that's a statement of fact, but hear me clearly, it's certainly not an endorsement. The Bible speaks about this often. Our God doesn't take bribes. I think about it this way in Deuteronomy, where he says, you know, for the Lord your God is a God of gods and the Lord of lords the great God and mighty and awesome who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. Like you can't bribe him. I mean, he would never be that. It's offensive to who he is. And he calls us not to be that way. Goes on in Deuteronomy and says, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality or take a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. There is no sense that God is endorsing that reality into our world. And so, again, it could be that we're just looking here at Proverbs and he just says, hey, it's true. You know, sometimes bribes just seem to, to, to work that. And it could be just highlighting it as a statement of fact. Nevertheless, not always does it have to be it that way. I mean, the word, again, could speak of the idea of, of just gifts and, and in the midst of it and without spending much time on it. I will say this, sometimes there really is power in that that gifts are a true way of sometimes communicating love, not when they're meant to deceive or, or meant to, in that sense, bring harm. But I think about it. You know, I think about it sometimes even in marriages and relationships. Maybe some of you who are married, you've kind of read that, that now kind of famous book, like The Five Languages of Love, and talks about the different ways that it's shown. And, and it is true. Sometimes being able to, to speak and, and, and to communicate in a way that would be this, that it can bring about just a, you know, a blessing you know, of being able to communicate in that way and where it's not a bribe, hey, it's a good thing, but certainly, again, just leaving it there. So giving it either way, letting you know where it is, but he invites us just to see that there. And in one sense, again, however it lands, may God just work that into our lives. So I'm going to leave that one there. 
Verse 9, let's go. It says, he who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. We find ourselves repeating things that we've seen in Proverbs, but highlighting it so well. It says, if you cover a transgression, that you are one who forgives and isn't the one who is broadcasting everybody else's failures, you seek love. You seek to, to be one who shows the love and the love of God in the midst of that. But in contrast, the one who repeats a matter, i.e. gossips, or tells everybody everybody else's failures, is glad to tell everybody, you know, everything that they've done wrong. He says that, that can be destructive. It can separate friends. We saw that last week, even in chapter 16, where he just let us, lets us know how incredibly destructive gossip can be that it can hinder relationships and even destroy friendships. And he just invites us to a different place. I think about it back in Proverbs 10. It gave it to us in a positive way, where it says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Or when Peter quotes it in the, book of, in the New Testament, he says, love covers a multitude of sins. He's inviting us to be the kind of people who show the love of God, that there are not those who delight in you know, bringing up other people's failures, not repeating all of those things, but being those who show love and cover. So simple kind of thing just to ask you, so which one is you? I mean, I'm just, I mean, not asking for a show of hands, but I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering if you find yourself looking at this and saying, I I know which side I want to be on this, and I know which side I'm trying to be. See, I'm hoping right now that you know a lot of bad things about some people, about their past, about their failures, and you don't ever bring them up. You know, never tell them. It's like, you don't need to know. God's forgiven them. Why do, I don't need to tell you what somebody else's past was or, hey, did you know? <laughs> if you actually knew what they did, you might see them a little bit differently. Do you, do you feel like you need to tell everybody, you know, all the dirt that you know? Oh, it, it's, I'm just, it's just for prayer, you know. It's, just, it's not really gossip, you know, kind of thing some Christians would say, but it's, it's so destructive. You should be the kind of person that says, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, there's a lot of things I know. I, don't, I, don't, I have no need to tell anybody. I'm glad to cover. Now, this doesn't mean that we excuse sin. It doesn't mean that there's not a place for confronting sin. The Bible calls us to that, gives us, you know, Jesus gives us, you know, hey, if someone's sinning, you know, you can, you know, talks about Matthew 18, how you deal with that. But even in that, there's a way of covering it. It's like, hey, you go to that person alone. You don't go to everybody. You don't go talking about them to everybody. You go to that person. And if that doesn't work, you take somebody else. But it still kind of falls under this category that I'm not a gossip, that I'm not just somebody who's glad to kind of, you know, pour that out. And yet that's the world that we live in. We live in a world that so often enjoys this, that, uh, you know, much of what is, quote, entertainment or even just within articles has, you know, great joy in trying to find bad things about somebody, no matter how, you know, this is what they did back in high school, and this is what they did back in college. It's like, I, why do I, no, I don't need to know. I mean, and I hope you find that. You know, I, I hope that you find the way that God wants us to be to be that, you know, we live in a world that so often we have a very strong sense of both our own failures and our own sense of condemnation that we struggle with. And I just want to say, I hope that what you're finding in the body of Christ, boy, I hope it's what you're finding in this church, but certainly in the body of Christ, is a place that we believe in the power of forgiveness, 
that we, that we, we don't take great delight in needing to know everything you've ever done or, you know, telling you. It's like, no, we, we are glad to cover that and say, God, God forgives. Our God washes and we, we, we want you to be washed. We want you to know that and, and, and to find this to be a place where you don't find, you know, well, I wonder what everybody's talking about me in the church, you know, I wonder if there's like these like circles about, you know, wondering about, I mean, I just hope it isn't that way. I, I'm going to tell you, sometimes church, Christians can fall into those things, but I hope it isn't so here and, it, and where it is. May God root it out in us. May we become a people that says, okay, here's what I do. I cover because I want the love of God. I want God's love to be known. I, I, I want that to be there. I don't repeat all these things because I don't want there to be a separation. I don't want people to find themselves, you know, feeling distant from church and distant from God's people. I want there to be connection. I want you to feel safe here. I want you to feel like, hey, you know, if we have a problem with you, we'll talk to you personally. <laughs> we don't go talk to everybody else. If we're concerned about something in your life, we will come to you alone. And say, hey, we're, you know, kind of wondering, are you doing all right? You know, you're not going to tell five other people about it before. I mean, that should be what you find. I just want to tell you, that would be an amazing space to, to find in a broken space, because we are broken people, to find it to be so, and may God make it so for us. May we be a people who walk in all that that would be. God, rescue us from being gossips. Rescue us from the destruction of it. All right, flip the page. Verse 10. Rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. Pretty simple proverb that draws us to us, just a rebuke, a simple word rebuke. It is more effective for someone who's wise, someone who's trying to do what's right, trying to walk in wisdom, than in comparison to a hundred blows on a fool, someone who is not trying to walk in wisdom, not trying to walk in those ways. Again, I tend to think about things through my own kind of lens, and I think about it as a parent, and some of you would understand as well. You know, there's a time, you know, when your children are being rebellious. Now, again, maybe yours weren't. Mine had spaces that they were being foolish, and you could give them 100 blows. I mean, you could, you could discipline them and discipline them and discipline them and discipline them and discipline them. I mean, it's 100 days. That's like three months of, of daily beatings. I just want to kind of put, it's like you could, you could just, dis, and, and, just, and it says it's not seeming to work, go well. But when they're doing well, when, when there's a sense that they're walking wise, it doesn't take that. Sometimes you can just say, that really disappointed me. That really made me sad. And it's like, whoa, I'm so sorry. You're like, ah, you know, just, I didn't want to do that. It's like, hey, I didn't take a hundred blows. What's the difference? It's the state of the heart. It's one who's wanting wisdom or someone who's walking in folly. And, and he just says, okay, it's so much right. When, when you're in a place of, of walking wisdom, how simple it t- can be that in some senses, even God's discipline in our life can be so gentle where we can, he, you could just have a sense like, mm, God doesn't like that. That's all it takes. I'm so sorry. You know, but when you're walking in folly, it could take a hundred blows. You know, how, how, how incredibly sad it is to look there and just realize, you know, that God will go that direction. God will be that one that disciplines us, even when it's hard. But it's so much better to walk in wisdom, to be one that can be very simply uh, rebuked. And may God make us more sensitive to God's discipline. Verse 11, an evil man seeks only rebellion. Therefore, a cruel messenger will be sent against him. So again, we're looking here at an evil person, someone who this is who they are, someone who's walking in evil. And in one sense, when you can look on that, all they really want is rebellion. 
I mean, that there's something that flows out of that. It, it, it becomes instinctively that that throws off a yoke that says no to everything that's good, no to everything that's right. He says, therefore, here's what's going to happen. A cruel messenger, that which would be there, which would be sent against him. Now, what exactly this is saying is a little bit debated. It could be that God is just saying, hey, this is a statement of fact. You know, when this person who is this evil person is walking in rebellion, it'll come back on them. I mean, that's the way it works. In, in, in a world that God has invented, a world that God has designed, hey, rebellion, it doesn't actually last long. It always causes problems. You could look at somebody and go, that's gonna, you, you're going to reap what you sow. I mean, that's going to come back on you, and it's going to come back on your heart, and it just does. I mean, in, our, in, our, in a world that's true there, it is. Others would look at this and say that that messenger isn't just kind of the reality of that rebellion, but God's discipline. Like, God's going to deal with that. Like, there's going to be a message, but it's not going to be a kind message that's going to come there. It's going to be a message that's going to be hard and cruel, you know, that will be sent against that person who is walking in rebellion, who is saying, you know, don't tell me what to do. You know, that, that just, you know, I, I resist all that's right or anything that's good. He says that would come into a place that will have just that kind of problem work against us. Simply, sadly, true. May God rescue us from it. I mean, obviously, there's got to be a sense that we look at that and go, that's just a bad way to live your life. I mean, to, to, to be an evil person walking in rebellion, it's only going to become hard. May God just even root that out of any place that's in where we are right now. Verse 12, let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. He says, here's the thing, let a man, you know, if you're going to make a choice, choose to meet a bear you know, robbed of her cubs. Now, that's just want a picture. In fact, it almost has to be comical, does it not? I mean, you have to understand, like, there's almost just this kind of, like, I just imagine, I mean, I mean, the very idea of a, of a, of a mother bear robbed of her cubs has the very understanding of, like, that's going to be dangerous. I mean, like, you're going to see a bear get mad. That's going to be a very dangerous predicament. But he says, if you had a choice between that or a fool who is now fall, fully walking in their folly, you should choose the bear and her cubs. Because folly is so much worse. It's so much more destructive. To watch somebody who is choosing to reject God and choosing to go, and then choosing to live a life of folly, man, everything around them is going to suffer. Everything around their lives is going to become problematic. And again, kind of almost just in comical ways. It's like, you know what? I'd rather take the bear. You know, like at least I'd know what to expect. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to maul me or whatever, it's going to hurt. But at least I, it, you know, it, it, the, the danger is so much worse over there that in one sense to say that's a, that's a reality that's a part of it, and again, obviously call us away from living in such folly and, and the lay, away from just walking in the things that God would have not to be there. Wow. All right. Well, you can turn the page. Let's try a couple more, and then we'll probably have to end uh, and, and stop about halfway through or not even quite half. Verse 13. It says, Whoever rewards evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. So in this one's one of those Proverbs that isn't really a contrast between two things. It's more of just a simple statement where he says, here's the thing. If when somebody does good and you do evil, whoever rewards that, that is somebody who would do this, says, here's what you need to know. Evil's not going to depart from your house. And it's kind of saying, again, what we just saw, that there's consequences to this, that when you do that and you walk in that way, it'll never go well for you. And it will never go that. I mean, obviously, again, to be that. And yet we live in a world that is this, that rewards at times. Uh, even when we try to do good, it does evil. He says that's, that, that's going to bear those consequences. It will never depart from the house. 
Verse 14. It says, The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore stop contention before a quarrel starts. This is one of those powerful proverbs that we could spend a bunch of time on, but I think just giving it to you clearly will just make it land. But I'm just going to tell you, this is one that has daily benefits to really learn. He says, here's the thing. The beginning of of strife, the starting of an argument, the starting of a problem, it's like releasing water. It's, it's the idea of, you know, once you let the, that, that, that out, once the water's flowing, there's no easy way to put that back. There's no easy way. Once, it, once that's moving forward, it just, it's just going. It says, therefore, it's so much better if you could recognize this and stop contention, stop an argument before it starts. Because once that, that, that's out of the bag, once the cat's out of the bag kind of a deal, getting it back in. I mean, undoing that which has been done is so hard, if not at times, absolutely impossible. It's a pretty clear proverb, but I'm just going to say it this way. I don't think there's anybody in this room that goes, I have no idea what that's like. That's an interesting thing. Never seen that before. I'm just going to tell you, yes, you have. And, and if you could realize it, I mean, I don't know if you've been there. Sometimes it's like, could I just rewind? Could I just unsay what I said? Because you know, now this has caused so much problems. I didn't even mean to say that. And, and yet once it's out, it's like it's done. I mean, there's no way to undo some of that. Most conflicts that happen between friends, most conflicts that happen in marriages are, are so often misunderstandings and, and things that take place in there. But once they're sad, once they're sad, once, you, once, once the, 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 the water's flowing, it's like, darn, you know? And so the thing that he's calling us to be is stop it before it starts. I mean, think about it before you say it. You know, it's like, is, that, is this really? No, no, it's not. I mean, it's like, there's no reason to even say it. It's not a good thing. I mean, one said, stop it. Stop it before it starts. And, and I knew this for some of you. You could understand this really well. It's like, man, if I could go back and just, you know, you know we ended up in this, you know, maybe it was your, 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 your best friend or maybe it was your sister or your brother. It's like, man, it was like six months Six months we started this argument, and I can look back and where it started, and it was a pointless argument. I didn't know how we started it. If I could have just stopped it before it started, but now that it's been there, now that it, it's so incredibly complicated. And so he's calling us to a place of wisdom where we recognize the value in thinking, you know what? The best way to win a fight is to not have one. You know, the best way, you know, is to not even say it. Like, it doesn't need to be said, because if I, I, I know where this is going to go, and it's a pointless place. And, and, and just to be that kind of person that realizes that and stop a quarrel before it starts. What incredible wisdom. May God cause us to be such a people that will walk in that. Let's do at least one more, and we might end here. It says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them are alike an abomination to the Lord. So we kind of return. A moment ago, we talked about one of these, the person who kind of does evil to, to those who are good. And now he puts it both ways. He says, okay, so here you have somebody who justifies the wicked. So somebody's doing the wrong thing, and, and, you, and you're going to bless them or say it's good that they're doing the wrong thing or somehow make it okay that they're doing the wrong thing. Or you're going to condemn that person who's doing the right thing. So they're doing the right thing, and and you condemn them in the midst of that. Here's what he's simply wanting us to understand. Both of them, at the same moment, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Why do you need to see this? 
because we live in this place in our world that has a moral compass that is so off and off, and, and, and sometimes it has a way of, of looking at things in a way that maybe paints everything with a single brush or tries to see it where one is not really bad and the other is. And again, maybe I'll just you know, kind of quote, I think David Guzik did a good job in his commentary, says it well. He says, the proverb corrects a popular misconception that it's better to set free 10 guilty persons than to condemn one innocent person. He says, both of them are an abomination to the Lord. And yet, see, we live in a world that kind of is this way. That they would say, well, you know what, I don't want to condemn, you know, a righteous person. But, you know, might as well just let 10 guilty people go free. Like, I don't want to be the person that, you know, you know really does, you know, bring and, and, and do that. God says, but I, I hate both of it. They're both wrong. I mean, there's a place where, where you're not dealing in righteousness, where both of them are things that God looks upon and says, no, like, that's not the way we play this game. That's not the way this works. You know, that you don't get to, you know, justify the wicked and say, well, you know, I think, you know, that most of them are fine, you know. And I was like, no. You know, there's a sense of looking at this and recognizing that's not the way that God wants us to work, and it's not the way He's treating us. And I think about all of this, and ultimately, that's where the, the final thing lands. God doesn't do that. God doesn't make mistakes. God never justifies the wicked. He never looks at somebody who's wicked and accidentally forgives them and accidentally lets them into heaven. He never does it, never. I mean, he, there's, there's not a single person who has refused Christ, who's walking in wickedness, that God will justify. Not one. Not one. There's not a single one that, that God you know, makes a mistake or goes wrong with that. But please hear me as well. There's not a single one who's right that he will ever condemn. There's not a single one who is right with him that he will ever make the mistake and accidentally condemn you. There's no condemnation for those of us in Christ, Paul tells us in Romans 8. It's this perfect place where we look at a God who does it right, who, who deals with the, the wicked and he condemns them and deals with the just, and he justifies them. And, and he is doing that well. He's calling us to live such lives, but even just to rest in who he is. You know, I think about it even this evening as we're thinking about all of these things. I just enjoy the reality of God's perfection. And so say it one more time. You know, here again, if you're wrong with God, if you're wicked, if you're not coming to Christ, there's no way you're getting into heaven. There, there's, no, there's no way he's accidentally going to let you in or get off on a technicality or, you know, somehow because there's so many other bad people that you're going to be okay. No, if you're not right with God, if you're not right with Christ, then, there's no, then, then that punishment is yours and it will never work well with you. There's only one way into heaven and it's Jesus. And, and so we just plead with you today to recognize that if you're kind of hoping that you know, because maybe it works out in the world that way. I mean, sometimes it's like, well, you know, you kind of seem like the world kind of lets you off, you know, and you don't always, you know, you don't, not everybody gets caught, not everybody, you know, but it's like, it doesn't, that's not our God. He hates it, and he's not going to deal with you that way. And so I call you to salvation if that's you this evening. But I want to end with it again, just saying, but there's such incredible hope because sometimes this world does do us wrong. Sometimes you do the right thing, and the world treats you wrong. Sometimes what we saw just a couple of Proverbs before, that for those who reward, you know, good with evil, sometimes that happens. Sometimes in this world, and God looks at us and says, I hate that. I don't like it. It's not, the way, it's not the way it's supposed to work. But it's not the way He works. That we think about the way that He works, that He would look upon you and say, I, that's not the way I'm going to treat you. I mean, you just need to know that. 
I got to be honest with you, for some of you, this would incredibly rescue you because you live in this place of like, I'm not sure, you know. I know he said no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but what if, what if he decides to condemn me anyway? I mean, what if, you know, I mean, what if, you know, I'm kind of like the exception to the rule, and he's like, well, you know, no condemnation except for Jim. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, Jim, he's, he's, he's still going to get some of that. And then say, no, there's, if I'm right in Christ, how incredible this is to recognize he doesn't ever do that. Never, ever does that. He never makes those mistakes. And so to find yourself safe in such a place is an incredible place where we're being invited to live our lives there. So that's where we're going to close this evening, and we'll pick it up next week. May God invite you to be that person who is walking in his ways, that is walking in what he would have in the midst of this, and so longing that he would draw you to all that that is. So wherever that's met you tonight, longing that he does that, let's just close in prayer, asking that God would do this. And we're going to close just in a couple of worship songs, uh, kind of what we've been doing in the last couple Wednesday nights, that you know, we just want to give a moment that whatever God has spoken to you, you would respond. And it would be a response in worship. It would be a response where you just seek to find him meeting you where you are and him just washing over this in your life, and we're longing that it would be real for you. So let's ask him for that. God, I thank you that you are a God who never fails. God, I pray for that you would cause us to be those that walk more in your ways, that shine the light of Christ in a broken world. But Lord, I thank you that you are always doing it well, that you're always working that which is good. You started that good work in us. You're seeking to complete it in Christ. Even the trials that you let us go through, they are refining for our good. God, I believe you. I believe you, and I believe in in just the hope and the weight that's in you, and I pray blessing upon us this evening that you would cause us to know this, be met in this, and encouraged in your good favor. We ask for it together in Jesus' name. Amen.